Welcome to episode eight of the Into the Hopper podcast. My name is Tim Hopper, and I'm here today with my friend Jawanza Joseph. Jawanza is a software developer in Salt Lake City and as, and as of last year, vice president of software engineering at Finicity, a MasterCard company. In December, Jawanza published what I think is his first book, Mastering Apache Pulsar Cloud Native Event Streaming at Scale with O'Reilly Media. And we're going to talk about that book today. Welcome, o- <laughs> I almost said welcome, O'Reilly. Welcome, Jawanza. <laughs> Thanks for having me on, Tim. I, I really appreciate it. My pleasure. This is a little a little overdue on my uh, timeline, but I guess this is nice and we, we're uh, right after the release of the book and it's a perfect time for, for people to pick up this book. Uh, anything else you'd like to tell us about yourself and introduction? Yeah, um, I'll add a few things. So um, I'm a avid road cyclist. So that's something that I have really enjoyed um, after moving to Utah. So I've, I've been in Utah for, oh, it's probably like 13 years now. And um, something I picked up pretty early. And then I'm a father. So I have two, two kids. I got a five-year-old and a two-year-old and also a husband. Um, and that, that's about it. I think that that covers my landscape of the landscape of Joanza. I mean, model rocket builder. Oh yeah. Drone photographer. <laughs> I don't want to overstate my, my, uh, skills. Uh, I, I think I mean, before I met you, like I thought, Oh, I'm a photographer. And then I saw your stuff and I'm like, oh, I'm not, I'm not a photographer. I'm just, oh. I'm just a guy with a camera that, that pretends cause your, your stuff is amazing. You're very kind. Yeah. I'm uh, trying to find time to f- photograph anything other than my kids, but I, I have, <laughs> that's been pretty limited lately. <laughs> yeah. Why, why can't the day be like 35 hours instead of 24 and then yeah. we could have that time. But you think our employers would take that extra, you know, 10 hours from us anyway, if we, we got 10 more per day. Probably so. Yeah, probably. Made that four day work week. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> So you wrote a book on Apache Pulsar, which I uh, had never heard of until you started writing this book. Uh, what is Pulsar? Yeah, so Pulsar, the way I, I would describe it, is a new way to think about storing and retrieving streams of data. Um, and so I think most people would probably approach it with the definition that's like, you know, it, it's similar to Kafka, but has these key differences. But I really look at it more as a, Hey, if you were to think about uh, streaming data and like how a whole topology of streaming data would come together, how you would store it, how you would retrieve it, um, that's really what Pulsar is designed to solve is is that kind of bunch of problems. And then the use cases for it come as more of a kind of applying applying what Pulsar solves to your your use case. But it's, it's really solving kind of a very specific thing, I feel like. Kind of how how did you get into it? I guess, and that leads into the question of what what motivated you to write a book on it. Yeah, so let me let me talk about how I I got into it. So the first time I used Pulsar, it's back kind of right uh, shortly after it was open sourced. Um, at the time, I was using Kinesis, uh, Amazon Kinesis, for some of kind of the same workloads, and um, I was very compelled by some of the key differences in, in Pulsar that will. We'll probably get to in a minute about you know the well one the protocol and then two kind of the client interactions with it. But and so I, I at that time uh, migrated some of our, our workloads of the company I was working at from um, Kinesis to to Pulsar, which was kind of crazy because it was like it had been out for like a year like in public. But um, I guess I had 
a lot of leverage to do that at the time. And so that's when I first got into it. And then subsequently, you know, I left that company. Um, I didn't get to work with Pulsar anymore, kind of on a, a work basis. And then um, actually with this book in particular, O'Reilly approached me about, about it. And so um, I'm not, I'm not particularly sure why, like I'm not a committer on Pulsar. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm actually, actually at the time wasn't using it in production or anything like that. But I think a lot of the past writing and speaking I did about Pulsar when I was using it kind of, I was kind of identified as someone that would be a reasonable target to write it. And so they approached me, I wrote the proposal and they accepted the proposal and then the rest is history. People can find some talks I saw that you've given uh, on YouTube uh, on the topic, which is probably a nice introduction. And, and this wasn't that long ago. I mean, I, I think I read it. It was open source only in 2016. So um, yeah, less than six yeah, years ago, right. probably. Yep. Um, but yeah, it was it was uh, created in Yahoo, you know, a lot, a lot earlier than that. But yeah, it wasn't open sourced until until then. So, you know, I think it was pretty, pretty hidden um, as far as like, anyone knowing or, or hearing about it probably until like 2018 is it was when you saw a lot more marketing and like use cases and blog posts being written about it but um it's yeah it's a, a, lot, a lot smaller audience i think than you know something like kafka which you know has been able to kind of benefit from well one the timing and then two just like the much wider adoption and and kind of being a little bit earlier too to open being open sourced that makes sense. And I, I saw yeah. 2018 is when it became a top level Apache project, which certainly gives it a higher profile. Yeah. So who is your target audience for this book? Yeah. So um, that's actually an interesting question because I'm going to see if I contradict what I wrote as the, the, the target audience <laughs> in, the, in the book. Because um, Yeah. So the target audience is, I think, I, I kind of approach it from two two angles. So one is, you know, people who are interested in streaming and like, stream well stream processing and streaming in, in general is kind of like an architectural paradigm because the book focuses on kind of building up from the idea of like why we need this type of system and interaction and then uh also people who are using pulsar so people who are getting started with pulsar to kind of act as a reference guide for them of like you know all the operational procedures like how, how things work how to kind of construct you know different elements of of the pulsar ecosystem so that was really the the two prong audience. Um, and, and I think for either group, you can you know start with the book and, and kind of get value out of it, you know, over, over time, hopefully that means that that was the goal at least. You know, when I heard of this topic, I, I've done some, some uh, streaming stuff in the past, but mostly in Kafka um, and have an interest in kind of distributed systems and, and things, but it hasn't been as much my um, priority in terms of, kind of on the management and backend side of, of building these types of systems. Um, so I didn't necessarily think it would be a book that would be right up my alley, but, uh, and I have actually haven't read all of it, but I, I read a good chunk of it um, in preparation for this and it was very engaging and, and had a lot of, even just the, some of the foundational material in the first few chapters and thinking about event processing uh, really helped solidify for me some concepts that I've experienced in the workplace, but never really, um, studied. So I think um, probably more people, people might benefit from this more than they think if, if they're dealing with kind of streaming data and uh, event processing. Uh, I think it, you, you lay out some things really nice, nicely. Oh, thank you. 
actually on that note, I, I wanted to ask is, is uh, in the first chapter, you have this, this great story of uh, selling Pokemon cards in, in school and using that as a, um, an, an analogy for um, kind of the distributing um, events and information uh, through a system. Uh, the chapter is called the value of real time messaging. Um, but I want to know if that was a, a true story. Cause it was, it was pretty great. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> so, um, so in in kind of going back and reading reading back through, because I got a lot of positive feedback from the editors on that. Um, uh, what I what I kind of realized is actually it's a a combination of true stories, but the end to end story itself wasn't necessarily yeah. how it happened, right? So, so we did have a system for communicating like via walkie talkie. And, but it wasn't actually for the Pokemon cards. That was for something else. And okay. then we did sell Pokemon cards. And so I think my imagination and like memories from, you know, whatever fourth grade and fifth grade kind of merged back together to make this story. But then when I kind of really drilled in on like, okay, who would have been involved in this? Like, how would we have done this? I kind of realized, oh, this is actually two stories that I've merged into one. And nice. so I think the, there's not anything that's like false about it, but it's really not end to end like the one story that happened. So okay. um, it's really two two different situations, but you know it, it works. Yeah, I, and I really liked it. I, I thought uh, it was a very engaging way to start the book, um, and had some helpful uh, ways to think about the, the problems. Um, well, thank you. And, yeah, I. I I was pleased. I mean, you know, you, you hear a topic like this and you kind of expect to just jump into something very dry and technical right away. And, uh, you did a nice job not doing that. Um, so I appreciated that. Uh, you must've been very cool running around with walkie talkies on your uh, little side hustles at school. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's actually, actually kind of interesting. So, um, I know this podcast isn't about this topic, but I, I grew up in Queens, New York. And so, um, we, and then I grew up kind of in a, like a, a lower income neighborhood and uh, we didn't have like, you know, walkie talkies that our parents bought us. So we actually found some, um, you know, in a kind of like a, tr- a trash situation, like, you know, op- open trash bags. And so that's kind of how, how things sort of originated with, with that. So it's, it's a, uh, so we probably did seem pretty cool and like futuristic, but <laughs> you know, it, it, or not futuristic is not the right word, but just kind of cool. Cause we were at, no one else had walkie talkies. And so, you know, that, that, that must've been uh, really kind of interesting to everyone, but yeah, <laughs> it, uh, it was, it was a good time. <laughs> Kids these days are walking around using their uh, Apple watches in walkie talkie mode. Probably. Yeah. My, my daughter, you know, she has like a, an iPad. Um, and, and, and so I've, I've tweeted about this where, where you, the auto switch on the, the, the AirPods, right? I walk into my house and then I'm listening to whatever she's watching. And I think, well, I didn't have an iPad until I was in college. Like, yeah. And she's like, you know, just chilling on the couch with, you know, an iPad. It's crazy because <laughs> yeah, all the, the cost of all this stuff has come down and it's like, just kind of like normalized now, which is interesting. Yeah. It's a different world. Yeah. Uh, um, so kind of at a high level, you know, the, the book is called cloud native event streaming at scale. Can you, maybe tell us what event streaming is as a concept and then why you might use event streaming versus um, something like just a REST API for thing, systems to communicate. You know, we often think about you know, these days microservices communicating through, you know, REST or gRPC or something along those lines. Like wh- where does event streaming differ from those? Yeah. So I would say um, 
so so let me describe event streaming. So event streaming is, you know, kind of instead of being actually let me, let me try to contrast that that's the easiest way to explain it. So you, you kind of said, oh, wh- why would you do this versus rest? Uh, so so in rest world, rest is all about resources. So yeah, your, your APIs are built around operations relative to resources. So creating new things, editing them, deleting them, and um, like, oh, so creating, reading, updating, and deleting them, right? Um, and so it's it's not about the, not about keeping track of the full state of those objects or resources. So you, you can have a REST API that's about um, like creating new pictures or creating pictures, right? So you could create a new picture, you know, retrieve one, update one, delete one. But if you wanted to understand the full history of that picture, um, and it's usually not something that would be on that same resource API, right? Maybe there's another one that will give you kind of like a full sequence of everything that happened. Contrast that with events. It's it's all about keeping track of the full state of events in in a, in a resource or events in, in general. So it could be kind of abstracted away from a resource. So uh, if you look at the same picture idea as events, it's about okay. So creating the picture is one type of event. Modifying the picture is another type of event. Deleting the picture is a, is a third type of event. And the idea is that you, as a consumer of those events, can then reconstruct all the all the history of that event um, or get the exact state of the event right now in time um, from one kind of specific um, consumption of, of a topic or or a queue so that that's it's a paradigm shift to think about everything as events rather than as a resource and and so then you get you get a lot of different types of interactions that you can have as a, as a result um, and so why, I guess I didn't answer the like, why would you want to do one versus the other? And I think I talked about this a little bit in the book. It's modeling kind of a resource or like kind of database oriented interaction um, in a event world is actually possible and not that it's trivial, but you can kind of recreate the same kind of interaction from like a stream to a table, but going from kind of a table like back to a stream is, is, is more difficult uh, because if you, if you think about like how keeping the state of like a, a row in, in a database or like a, an ID in a database is much, it's, it's really kind of not what databases are for. It's kind of to give you a, an a mutable copy of like, Okay, this we're just going to keep mutating the same row, whereas the event paradigm is we're going to just always append, right, and not mutate anything that's existing already. So it's it's a very contrasting view. Anyway, that was a long answer, but that that that's my answer. <laughs> that's really helpful. And in the book, you you say at its core, Pulsar's implementation is a distributed log, and you you talk about the uh, 2013 blog post by Jay Kreps from who's at LinkedIn at the time called the log, what every software engineer should know about real-time data's unifying abstraction, which I, I actually started um, that right that same month. I started working my first job um, kind of dealing with distributed systems and log-based architectures. And I, I read that blog post just over and over, like, I need to really understand these concepts. Uh, but I, I had not really connected um, mentally until reading this um, 
about kind of a, an event system being uh, an implementation of a distributed log, which is what you call it, but which I think is a, is a pretty uh, fascinating, and it's, it's sort of a simple concept, but it's, it's a fascinating concept, I think. Yeah, um, I, I agree. Um, you know, the, the, the distributed log is, um, so, so since, um, so since the creation of like, or the, the open sourcing of Pulsar and Kafka, um, you know, other messaging protocols have, you know, kind of appended a distributed log to like their messaging layer to kind of give them the same sort of semantics. So like RabbitMQ has like RabbitMQ streams now, and then Redis has Redis streams, and then Nets has this thing called Jet streams. And essentially, yeah, it's just kind of, you know, I'm not trying to oversimplify what they've engineered, but it's really, okay, how can we take, you know, this Q idea and instead of making it, you know, sort of not like not really, it, it is append only, but it's also, well, it's not append only, right, in the queue, right? It's, it's append and, and also like delete. And so how can we t- turn that into like append only? Um, and so, yeah, it, it's, it's an important distinguisher or like, yeah, distinction between kind of what, what like a Kafka or Pulsar is trying to do and then what like a message queue is doing and how, how that leads to different types of interaction paradigms and scalability paradigms as well. That makes sense. Uh, I, I asked uh, some audience um, of the podcast if they had any questions and, and one wanted to know uh, kind of where Pulsar uh, compared to Red Panda, which if you can maybe explain a little bit what Red Panda is, I, I don't, I'm not actually familiar with it. Yeah, for sure. So um, they're very different, but so, so Red Panda is, is um, it is a it is taking the the Kafka protocol. So Kafka, you know, has a a protocol that says like this is how you you know you have consumers and producers and like these are the types of things they can do. These are the types of configurations they can have, and then this is the behavior that they should have. And then instead of having that implemented in Java, they re-implemented in C So you still get the same Kafka API and protocol, but just internally. It's actually different, and so what you get is um, better memory management, and like also the uh, GC uh, issues that you can have with Kafka at scale, so garbage collection, excuse me, uh, kind of go away because they've just re-implemented it in C So that's what Red Panda is. Um, so Pulsar, by contrast, is a completely different protocol than the Kafka protocol. So it's not. So you can't take like a, a, a Kafka client and connect it directly to Pulsar. That said, Pulsar does have um, a, a framework for doing other protocols on top of Pulsar. So then Pulsar kind of becomes similar to Red Panda. So you can do a Kafka on top of Pulsar. So there's a kind of a, a thin layer of a Kafka protocol, and then it's translated down into the Pulsar protocol and then back out. So in that way, they can be similar. So there are some companies out there uh, who sell you know, Pulsar as a service, and then they also offer Kafka on top of Pulsar as a service. And the idea is that it helps you migrate over to Pulsar. So you kind of start doing you know, Kafka and Pulsar, and then maybe you start kind of doing Pulsar alone. Um, and so that is... Yeah, that's one of the, the implementations. And actually, that same core idea of like taking the protocol and then kind of re-implementing the internals of it is, is something that Pulsar kind of as a community is interested in. So what they're doing is just actually trying to modularize everything internally. 
so that if they wanted to just kind of like re-implement kind of the core Pulsar broker and C++ or Rust or whatever, that they could do that uh, easily. Whereas, you know, in, in this Red Panda project, it's really like a complete fork of Kafka and not like a, a not like a rewriting of the internals of, of Kafka. So, okay. Yeah. So if we can maybe take a little step back there, yep. um, I think a lot of people are familiar with Kafka, probably um, maybe secondarily um, the Kinesis these days because of AWS. Um, and and you're talking about, you know, Kafka is very different from Pulsar in terms of protocol, but like um, at least my understanding is sort of similar in terms of the functionality they're providing. Where would someone... You know, decide to use one or the other if you're implementing it, uh, or you know maybe even you know when you initially implemented Pulsar several years ago. Like, wh- why was Pulsar a better alternative to Kinesis at that time? Yeah, so um, you, that you asked the loaded question. So um, <laughs> th- th- there's there's a few reasons. So let me. I think what one important distinction to make is kind of going back to the initial question of like what Pulsar is. And I use the word storage. Um, and so one of the big differentiators between Pulsar and Kafka is that, and, and you know, really any other you know, kind of comparable technology, is that Pulsar, the process of kind of reading and writing messages, so, so communication to consumers, is separated from the storage of the data. So the, the, the brokers that you interact with on Pulsar, so you, you would, if you wrote a client, you would connect to a broker. Those are actually stateless. And then the data that's in the topic is stored in Bookkeeper. And so what that gives you is you can scale out the data like as, as kind of wide as you want to and keep kind of a thin broker layer, right? You can keep it as kind of small as you need to meet your requirements around I.O., and whereas Kafka, the storage and the computing is actually together, right? So when you deploy Kafka, you deploy, especially now in like the most recent version of Kafka where they've removed Zookeeper, it's really like everything happens on the broker. And so if you want to add more storage, you need to add a new broker. Um, and so it's, and, and Kafka, I think like initially, you know, was, Kind of, kind of, kind of presented as like a, a a full kind of foolproof storage, and like you could just store messages in it forever. But what people started finding at scale is that that's actually kind of hard to do given the, the architecture. So with Pulsar, it's a lot easier to do given the architecture. So that would be one reason why you might want to look to use Pulsar. Is like, hey, I want to actually use my messaging or my like stream stream system as I hate to use the phrase as a database, but like a infinite storage. I want to store everything in here. I always want to have this available. Another big thing with the difference is multi-tenancy, right? So Pulsar supports multi-tenancy out of the box. So if you want to really like logically separate workloads and also limit workloads by resources. So, Hey, for this, you know, namespace, they should only get this much CPU and like their messages should have this much throughput. That's already like a native concept and it's not in Kafka. And so, and then in Kinesis, it's I'm actually not for, I don't remember if Kinesis has namespaces or not. I don't I would I would think no, but um, but that those are kind of the two biggest things. And the third one is kind of a smaller one where you know Pulsar, it's kind of the base implementation of their topics are actually a single partition. And so 
what you get with that is kind of a more familiar system to like a queue where um, if you use RabbitMQ or something like that, uh, th those would be like a single partition topic, right? All, every message goes to kind of one, one queue and then it gets kind of fanned out or it goes to one consumer on the other end. And so P Pulsar can support like that, you know, single partition and multi-partition. So if you wanted to model something as a queue or as a stream, you can do that. Whereas you, you can't quite as easily in Kafka because every topic is a multi-partition topic. And so you get kind of different outcomes there. So those are, that was a really long answer, but there, there's some, it's very like nuanced reasons. And so I think that's why it, it, the, the, for the adopters of Pulsar, they usually have some like real, you know, sophisticated thoughts behind how they want to do streaming and like how they want to do messaging at scale. And I think for kind of the median, you know, to like even like 80th percentile, you know, looking at this, it's like, well, Kafka kind of fills all of my needs, right? Or, or, or RabbitMQ does, I don't even want to do streaming. And so it's, it's really kind of niched into or a niche in like a really small kind of space of people who really understand like the limitations of the models that, uh, you know, Kafka or other messaging services provide. Uh, and so I think that the kind of commercialization efforts around Pulsars, the companies that are doing that are just trying to like make it si simpler and like not about these nuances and much more about just kind of providing an end-to-end -end, you know, platform because Pulsar has some other features too. We, I didn't mention in that list, but that, that's, that's roughly... Uh, I think the the real kind of message layer differences are, are those I described. Yeah, that makes sense. Another question from the audience. What, are there any of the um, like hosted Pulsar solutions that you particularly like uh, that you know about? Yeah. So I will um, caveat. I'm not, I'm not uh, getting paid by, by anyone to say any of this. So, uh, but yeah, I, I think um, so stream native, you know, they, they're really the, uh, kind of pioneering and most um, and like the largest player um, in, in this space. They have a nice managed solution. And uh, for most people, if you want to get started with like Pulsar for free, um, you can use that and then just see if you like Pulsar. And, and it's a pretty nice service and you won't get charged anything for like a small distribution. Um, Datastax is another company that has something called Astra Streaming and Astra is you know built on on pulsar and similarly like if you want to just get started at, on like a pay per usage basis they have like a tier for that and um it's also you know very simple to get started with and one of the nice things about both stream native and astra is they kind of force you to get started with like a good practice so you have to do like authentication and you have to also do um encryption right so so they, they kind of make sure that you get started that way whereas i know some managed services will just be like oh here's your password and like go at it but they, they will like you know kind of force you to a good pattern which i think is a good good thing to do to get started because you don't have to like encrypt data or use um you know a a, a good uh, like rule-based access control but these tools will kind of make force you to do it by using them okay very nice one thing in the title of the book, you talk about you know, Pulsar being cloud-native event streaming. What does it mean for it, the tool to be cloud-native? Yeah, so um, 
I actually hate the term cloud native. So uh, it's funny that you asked, but I, I think what I think what's meant by cloud native, and um, and so also I didn't um, you know fully decide the title there. So I think that um, I definitely approved of it and said great. But like I, I think if, if it were me, you know, I probably would have called it something else, maybe. But as long as it sells books, yeah, right, right. So so I think what cloud native has come to mean is like it's it's a sort of a CNCF like a cloud native computing foundation term right that is so, sort of like my my project works with CNCF things and so CNCF includes kubernetes right that's the biggest project out of the CNCF but then it's also including things like prometheus right so if you want to store your um, telemetry data right you have a prometheus exporter um, and then it includes things like um, I'm trying to think of some other big projects. So they they include like uh, you know other container image um, formatting or like uh, I'm trying to think of what what you would call like some of their container things. Anyway, anyway so, so I think what what it's come down to is like cloud native really means it runs on Kubernetes. I, I, this is kind okay. of how I how I interpret what people mean when they, when I hear the word cloud native. It's like, this will just run as a Helm chart or like this will run as an operator or like, you know, this is embedded in Kubernetes. Cause I don't, I don't think it means like, Hey, you can, you can get some EC2 instances and like figure out a way to put this on, on the cloud. Right. I don't, I, I don't, I think that it, it means something more specific. That's like, this will run on Kubernetes. That, that's how I, I interpret yeah. it. And like Pulsar has, as an open source project, is very invested in Kubernetes, right? It, it's like, you know, if you if you go to like how to install Pulsar, you know, you, you'll kind of look through and they'll show you how to do it on bare metal, they'll show you how to do it on, you know, EC2 instances. But then like when you get to the Kubernetes one, you're like, oh, okay, this one has like a lot more like automation and like simplicity. And, um, and you know, all of the, um, you know, attempts to make installing it better really kind of point back to, Kubernetes and then the extension features in Pulsar that we, we haven't talked about yet. Those are all trying to run better on Kubernetes. So I think when I hear cloud native, I hear Kubernetes. It's, and maybe that's cynical, but that, that's how I feel about it. If you don't like that, direct your email to Juwanza, not to me. <laughs> maybe if you want to tell us what are uh, Pulsar extensions. Yeah. So um, I think one of the underrated part, parts of Pulsar is actually the ecosystem. So um, I'll talk about a couple of them. So one is uh, Pulsar functions. So Pulsar functions are uh, kind of a lightweight compute execution engine for, for Pulsar that allows you to uh, use a Pulsar topic as an entry point or like a source, and then a Pulsar topic as a sync. And then you can do logic uh, within the function. So you could think of it as like a, I, I don't like to use the word stream processing because I feel like that's an overloaded term, but it's really just a, so a compute paradigm, right? Where you have, you know, a Pulsar topic as input and output. You could think of it similarly to like Lambda functions where you can have, you know, events as an input and then you can, but you can have more than events as output in Lambda functions. You can do a lot of things, but you know, that, that's, that's a base concept. Um, so Pulsar functions generally um, are are supposed to be lightweight and supposed to kind of be a small domain that each function is trying to do. But there is a, a concept of like state that you can establish among the functions. So there's like a centralized 
database in, in, in Zookeeper. Um, but or not Zookeeper, Bookkeeper, excuse me. Um, and so y- you can do some pretty sophisticated things with like global counters and like gl- global state management uh, with, with Pulsar functions. And then Pulsar functions, you can write them in Java, uh, which is kind of the core language of Pulsar. You can write them in Python, um, and then you can write them in Go programming language as well. Um, the other Pulsar, oh, go ahead. Well, do, do functions come, I mean, that comes with Pulsar. So if you, you install it, you, that you're ready to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So you can, so with the a default you know, distribution of Pulsar, you can run Pulsar functions and they will run on the same brokers. And so you can imagine there's some limitations to doing that at scale. And so if you're, if you're really running Pulsar functions, you, you want to run them kind of a separate deployment. Um, and, th- and so you can do that on Kubernetes cloud natively, um, or, you know, you can, you can run them on VMs or whatever you want to do. But yeah, if, if you just installed Pulsar, you know, on your, your Mac, right. Uh, on like, you know, kind or whatever, like Kubernetes would be the easiest way to do it. Um, then you will, you would have Pulsar functions that you could deploy there as well. Okay. So the other two things, um, are, I'll say three things. So the other one is Pulsar IO. So you could think of Pulsar IO as analogous to uh, Kafka Connect. So it's a framework that is, you know, trying to connect Pulsar to other elements of ecosystem, usually for the purposes of change data capture. So taking changes from MySQL, for example, and then writing those to Pulsar topic, or taking events that are getting published to Pulsar topic and publishing them out to Elasticsearch. So it's really kind of this framework to just kind of write once a a good connector that will just connect two things. And it's usually, you know, Pulsar is going to be on one end of those, right? Pulsar topic either will be a sync or a source, but then it can go, you know, reaching out to a database or, you know, a a, a message queue, another type of message queue. So you might want to go have Pulsar topic in, RabbitMQ topic out. And so that's the the whole concept is just, um, you know, a framework for building, you know, that type of connection. And so one of the interesting things is that actually Pulsar functions and Pulsar IO kind of share kind of the base, like base implementation. So it's really like you're building a kind of a, a, a Pulsar function for just executing like a specific type of task, right? When, when you make a Pulsar IO connector. That makes sense. Um, but yeah, you can only write them in Java right now. Um, it's kind of one of the limitations of it. So if you don't like Java, then tough luck, I guess, with this <laughs> that for now. So, And then, okay, so then the third one is Pulsar SQL. Um, so Pulsar SQL, I would say, is not analogous to KSQL DB. Um, it, it has some similarities, but they really have different goals. So Pulsar SQL is a way to read Pulsar topics um, in and then f- from their schemas and then write SQL queries against them. So, and then they, they are streaming queries similar to KSQL DB, but the goal isn't to like use like Pulsar SQL as like a, like a backend database or an application read, or it's more for interactive queries is what it's kind of there for. So if you wanted to, um, you know, if you wanted to, you know, search over all of your transactions and like do some analytical queries on them just straight up from the topic 
you could do that. If you wanted to join two topics together, you could do that. And and the way that it's implemented is it's it uses Trino, uh, which is uh, formerly Presto, um, and it uses the metadata you know from the topic that's stored in Zoo, or the topics that are stored in Zookeeper, and then um, it can reach out to Bookkeeper and also. If your data is in tiered storage, it can reach out to the tiered storage destination, which I haven't talked about yet. And that's the fourth and last one is uh, Pulsar supports tiered storage. So um, what tiered storage is, is a way to automatically offload data from Bookkeeper, where data is stored for Pulsar topics, into object storage. Um, and you, you can actually also do it in HDFS or file storage, but that's it weird thing to do. So I'm just going to talk about object storage. It makes makes a little bit more sense. So the idea would be, you know, Tim, you know, has a massive bookkeeper cluster, you know, 27 petabytes of data. And um, his boss is upset because it's costing a lot to keep that all. It's like half the cost to put it in S3. So uh, tiered storage would just have kind of an automatic trigger based on either, you know, the length of the data being in Bookkeeper, or you know the size of a topic, and then it would just write that data over into S3, and then the Pulsar brokers, that which are the things that are retrieving data from Bookkeeper, you know have a implementation that could kind of transparently retrieve it from the S3, like if it needed to, like for older stories that's in the object store, right? It it retrieves it similarly to how it would retrieve. Bookkeeper. So, so as a consumer, you don't really need to know where the data is stored. It just manages it for you. So that that that's the Pulsar ecosystem, roughly. That's that's very neat. Yeah. Are there uh, interesting directions of you know current development uh, things that Pulsar is looking to offer in the future? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I didn't get into this, uh, but Pulsar uses uh, Apache Zookeeper um, for a couple different things. So. One um, Apache bookkeeper requires a zookeeper to work, and but you, you probably feel like, man, Apache project needs to name name their stuff differently. But um, so, so yeah, and zookeeper is probably familiar to, to you as someone who's worked with you know Kafka and then also like any other distributed thing in the Apache ecosystem. The main thing I know about zookeeper, and I assume you're headed this direction, is it's it's something that every project is trying to remove as a dependency. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and and for good reasons, um, but yeah, it, it, I, I think uh, so. Confluent had a great blog post about like how when they announced that they were going to remove it from Kafka, like everyone was kind of like dogging on it, and they were just like, "Hey, let's defend Zookeeper. Like this thing is amazing. Like it got us here. It's like scaling up to like you know these ridiculous amount of events. But like we're just moving on to new paradigms, and we want to do different things, and it doesn't fit into the new things we want to do. So it's not that it's like bad. It just wasn't built for this next age of computing that we're doing. And so we're moving off of it. So Pulsar is removing that from, or it's, they're not removing it. They're making it pluggable so that um, what the, the, the use case that Zookeeper serves in the Pulsar ecosystem is, you know, one for Bookkeeper, but then two, to store metadata around each topic. And then what, um, and then how, how that data for the topic translates to what's in Bookkeeper. And so they've, they've just made it basically a, an interface now. So if you wanted to implement your own way of doing that kind of metadata, you could. Um, or if you wanted to do like a in Pulsar, you know, broker implementation, which is kind of a little antithetical to the whole way that it was designed, you could do that. Or if you wanted to switch it to 
etcd, right? You could do that. Or if you wanted to switch it to Redis, Redis or something else to store that metadata, you could do that. So their approach is instead of being kind of more authoritative about it, they want to make it more pluggable and like different options for different use cases, um, especially on the um, like the scalability side. Each of those choices will have some trade-offs. So that's one of the fun things that's happening. Another big thing is transactions, which are, are pretty new as of a couple releases ago, uh, which essentially would allow a, a atomic operation of data, you know, being read into a topic, transformed, written into another topic. Uh, and so transactions are helpful right, if you want to ensure kind of exactly one's processing in a stream processing pipeline. But as you can imagine, like orchestrating that is difficult. So Pulsar has an implementation in for it now. They're trying to make it a little bit simpler and like a little bit more um, rounded around the edges. I'd say the third um, thing that's interesting is uh, Pulsar Function Mesh. So I mentioned before that you know the topology of Pulsar functions are pretty simple, right there. Um, you know, topic in, topic out, and what what they're finding is that like in the actual usage, people are trying to construct some like really elaborate function topologies. And so instead of like people abusing it, you know, there's just a framework in there now that you can construct topologies that may have a different source than than Pulsar. Uh, topics or uh, that might need to do kind of like multiple things as, as part of one operation uh, in, in Pulsar function. So those are, I think, the, the most exciting things right now. And then there's a bunch of other like little improvements uh, around like the REST API um, and like the admin API and things like that. And, and we alluded to this, but Pulsar is a, an open source project. So the, when we talk about, you know, Pulsar is doing these things, it's open source contributors. Is, is there a company that's, you know, primarily driving this and paying people to work on it or? Yeah. So I think there's two really big ones, right? So stream native, I mentioned, and then data stacks right there. Okay. Um, they're both very good at um, kind of differentiating what should be like proprietary and then what should be kind of contributed back. And so, the things that are proprietary are usually the enterprisey features around like, you know, role-based access control and, um, you know, different ways of doing off, but the stuff like the kind of core capabilities or like enabling different types of, uh, you know, exchanges for the metadata, that's all open source. And so they're very, both very active in, in the community. Um, and there's other big contributors as well. So like Splunk, they're a big user of, of Pulsar, and so they contribute a lot of open source as well. You know, um, I, I don't know if Yahoo is called Yahoo anymore, but you know, they, they were the <laughs> original creators, and, they, and, they, and I still see you know contributions. I've tried to make some of my own, but like, um, it's one of these things where I'll find a bug, and then I'll start a like a merge require pull request, uh, depending on if you use GitLab or uh, GitHub, um, and. Like by the time I'm done, I'll go back and like someone else has done it already. And so it's happened to me three different times. So it's, like, it's a very active community and like people are kind of thinking about the same problems and experiencing the same one. So I'm hoping like a, it's on my list of things to get like a nice contribution in there. But I've been, I've been beat to the, the punch more than once. So yeah, I mean, that's discouraging as a contributor, but that's <laughs> encouraging as a if you're using the project, like people are really uh, working on it. Yeah. 
In the last few minutes here, I, you know, I'd be interested in, in hearing, you know, what's the process for writing a book like this? So, so my process, I, I was very methodical to start. Um, so I had a O'Reilly, I'll, I'll, I'm going to give them a huge you know, amount of praise for this. So like they, they've done this a million times. And so they have a nice system of like, you get assigned an editor, and then they put a schedule together for you. And then they check in regularly with you if you're making that schedule. And so um, with the schedule they provided me, I went ahead and then put that into my calendar of like, okay, if I want to have chapter one done by two weeks from now, I need to write at these times. And I need to make sure that that fits into my, my lifestyle. Like I don't, you know, plan a vacation at this time or like I don't, or if I do plan a vacation, I compensate for it by writing before. So I did that and I started out really great. And then what happened is once I got into like the more technical chapters that required me to um, take a step back and like be able to explain the technical concept without kind of being overly pedantic or like dry, then I, I kind of lost steam, right? It, it took a while for me to say, okay, how am I going how am I gonna talk about you know the the bookkeeper quorum, right? Without just like completely killing everyone's attention. Um, and so I slowed down a bit and then um, th- then I picked it back up. And then um, I had a real rough time toward the end of the book. So the book was due in September, like the final copy. And then I lost my mom in August. And so it was like, I was actually ended up being late, right? Because basically from the time that my mom passed away, probably until a month after that, I just couldn't write anything. I was just yeah. too too distracted. And so then I picked back up and like, it was kind of a mad dash there at the end because I was like a month behind and we still wanted to make the date. And so I think the process is just really plan. And then like, for me, I needed a lot of uninterrupted time, right? So if I had six hours on a Saturday morning, I would write, you know, 50 pages at that point um, of like, pre-page material, which would end up being like 10 pages in the actual book. But nonetheless, um, that that was my process is just like giving myself a lot of uninterrupted time and then planning out what I was going to do. And and that's kind of my my personality. I know a lot of people take different approaches, but for me, it's really kind of about planning and executing. And and that that works good for me, giving myself deadlines, like artificial or not, is, is really effective. So we should uh, thank your wife, Bethany, for giving you uh, those Saturday mornings. And Bethany also illustrated the book, right? Yes, she did. Um, So she's been my illustrator for my blog when I used to be a pretty regular blogger um, for for many years, I think since we got married. And so, um, yeah, she she did all of those pictures, which there's a lot. Um, You know, there's hundreds of them, I believe, in the book. So she... Um, you know, so I guess the process might be interesting to the listeners. So usually what happens is like, I'm writing, I think of the idea and then I draw a really terrible version of what Bethany eventually will kind of illustrate. So I'll say, okay, I need something that's like, uh, like my Pokemon one. Like I need, I need cards and like kids and, and then she'll just take it and make it. So she's, yeah, I mean, I, I owe her. A lot because I think some of the most positive feedback I got was around around the illustration. So um, yeah, she's lifesaver and uh, and she, she uh, yeah made made a huge difference. 
Yeah, awesome. And the, the illustrations are really nice, which it makes it uh, for a, a, a nice uh, read that way. I have the um, the Kindle version of the book. Uh, I think O'Reilly doesn't sell books directly anymore. Uh, they they kind of refer you to Amazon, um, but you can buy it in, in print and in uh, on Kindle. And, and the Kindle rendering is really nice, which, you know, that's a, 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 probably a plus of going with writing a book with O'Reilly. They really know how to do that because technical books don't always translate well. Do you think you would write any more books? Yeah. So um, I think I... I would. Um, I, I think if, if you were to ask me that question a month ago, I probably would say no. Um, <laughs> I think with, with some more time, um, I, I have a lot of, I, I've learned that I really like, like writing and I like the, the process of explaining things through, through writing. And so I would, I would write another technical book, but I also, I think I'm interested in writing a, like a memoir at some point too. Um, and, and so I think, I need to maybe do something more important than I've done so far. But once I, once I do like do something noteworthy uh, for the whole world to see, then, then I think I will write, write a memoir to tell my story kind of from the beginning till that point or something. But yeah, I think writing is, is great. And I actually owe myself um, like 10 blog posts or so that I'm supposed to be writing now to like kind of promote the book. And so you should be seeing some of those coming out soon. I'll, I'll post them on my Twitter. I've got like 10 drafts I need to finish. Very nice. Well, you're one of my most interesting friends. So I'll look forward to that memoir. Uh-huh. People can go back and look, you know, you've written on a variety of things on your website, uh, J-O-W-A-N-Z-A.com. Um, and, uh, I'd encourage people to go read some of your archives there. Yeah. Thanks, Tim. Appreciate that. And you can find Jawanza on uh, Twitter, twitter.com slash Jawanza. I'm on Twitter, twitter.com slash TD Hopper and I'm TD Hopper.com. Uh, anything else you'd like to share as we close? Um, yeah, I think the last thing is just uh, I think Pulsar and Kafka, you know, often get get compared because they they kind of seem like they take over the same space, and and I even use them as analogies. But I, I just want to be very clear that like I, I consider them as very different, and that they they solve you know some some of the similar problems with a different approach, and both are really awesome and have great communities, and I've benefited from both using both of them in my career. So I, I would not ever you know, use the comparison point as like a disparagement point. I feel like it's an important disclaimer. And one of the, that I try to make is that like they, they really um, have some really great advantages and disadvantages. And um, yeah, I just want to say that because I, I know sometimes things get twisted, but that, that's my strong feeling is like, it's a good comparison point because it's easy to see. But in reality, it's like they you know, solve similar problems in different ways and they're both great. And that's it. (laughs) Excellent. Thank you for coming on Into the Hopper. Thank you, Tim.